Thanks, Paul, and good morning, everyone. Um, We come to the next installment in the series on the life of Abraham. That uh, was Genesis chapter 18, or the first half of that chapter. I'd be most grateful if you could have uh, that open uh, in the Bibles that you'll find on your lap, or just in front of you, or just beside you. Mercifully, the page numbers still match more or less the chapter numbers, so uh, make the most of it. So it's Genesis chapter 18 and verses, 17, uh, and verses 1 to 21. In fact, I've been focusing uh, almost entirely on the first 15 verses of, that, uh, of this passage. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your patience in repeating this great promise to Abraham and to Sarah. We thank you for the glorious fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ. And now we pray that you would equip us and empower us to be truly the people of God as we wait for the final consummation of that promise. Amen. So the story of Abraham, then, is the story of a promise Back in chapter 12, the Lord had called Abraham from his home in Ur with the promise that he would make his descendants into a great nation and that all the peoples on earth would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. There is, of course, just one rather large problem. Abraham has no descendants. He and his wife Sarah are both elderly And Sarah has been childless all her life. But now, in our passage this morning, the promise first given to Abraham is now repeated in Sarah's hearing. Sarah is now brought into the embrace of God's promise. Let us welcome with Abraham his his three visitors who re-announce this promise. It's early afternoon on a typically scorching day. Abraham is relaxing at the door of his tent, enjoying his siesta. Suddenly, in front of him, appear three men. Following the custom of the day, Abraham welcomes them and offers them something to eat. They inquire about Sarah, his wife. And then one of the visitors says a most unexpected thing. In about a year's time, your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah, who overhears this, chuckles to herself in disbelief. But the visitor repeats his astounding prediction. A year from now, she will have a son. Well, that's the bare bones of verses 1 to 15, and as I've been lying and soaking in this passage recently, three things, three thoughts in particular, have been going around in what I fondly call my mind. And the first is this. In this passage, heaven touches earth. Heaven touches earth. Who were these three visitors? I don't think it was immediately obvious to Abraham who they were. 
But I think it must have gradually dawned on him that these were no ordinary travellers. Let's do a bit of detective work together. In verse 2, do you notice how they don't arrive from the horizon? They just suddenly appear. And then in verse verse 9 they say to Abraham, Where is your wife Sarah? How did they know he had a wife called Sarah? And then in verse 13, one of them asks, Why did Sarah laugh? But we know that Sarah laughed to herself silently. And they wouldn't have been able to see her face because they had their backs to her. How did they know that she had laughed inwardly to herself? Well, the identity of at least one of these visitors becomes clear in verses 10, 13, 17, and 20. When one of these visitors is speaking, and it is the Lord who is speaking. And then this matter is wrapped up by the first and last verses in the chapter, which make it quite plain that this whole episode is to be viewed as an appearance of the Lord. Verse 1 says, The Lord appeared to Abraham. And verse 33 says, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. So, well, that accounts for one of the three visitors. But there were three of them, weren't there? Now, according to some of the early church fathers and according to some Christian art, what we have here are no less than the three members of the Trinity. It's an attractive thought but it's not consistent with what the passage itself says. Because if you just look on to chapter 19 and verse 1, after the Lord has left, who then is left to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah? They're identified as two angels. It's the Lord accompanied by two angels. So now we know who they were. But it's a pretty amazing trio of guests to turn up at your tent, isn't it? We might well be tempted to think of the whole thing as some kind of myth or legend. But in fact, you know, this account is entirely consistent with the biblical view of the world. I don't say it's an everyday occurrence, but I do say that it's a true occurrence and is consistent with the Bible's view of the way things are. There is, according to the biblical worldview, a seen world of stars and planets, of land and sea, of plants and animals, of men and women. And there is a largely unseen world, which is the dwelling place of God and of countless angels. And these two worlds, the seen and the unseen, the natural and the spiritual, the earthly and the heavenly, these two worlds interact, they connect, they affect one another. Heaven touches earth. If you doubt this, think of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who in the beginning was with God and was God became flesh and dwelt among us as a man amongst men. When the Son of God was born in Bethlehem's manger, heaven touched earth. And then throughout his earthly life, Jesus had an an acute sense of the unseen world. 
Think, for example, of our reading from Mark chapter 1. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then think of what followed immediately after that. A confrontation between Jesus and Satan himself with angels in attendance. Heaven touches earth. Heaven touches earth for us too. I'm not just thinking of occasional miracles and periodic revivals when it becomes very clear, or much clearer, that heaven and earth are touching one another. But you know, heaven touches earth whenever anyone becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be born again, in the language of John chapter 3, equally means to be born from above, from heaven, to be born of the Spirit. Born, says John chapter 1, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but of God. When a person believes for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a renewal of that person's heart from God himself. Heaven touches earth when a Christian prays. It was on the basis of Abraham's conversations with the Lord in the second half of this very chapter, Genesis 18, that Abraham became known as the friend of God, bargaining, negotiating with God himself. And prayer for us too can become the conversation of friends in which we, earthbound creatures that we are, can actually participate with our Heavenly Father in the unfolding of his plans and his purposes. Heaven touches earth. But now a second thought that's been running round and round in my mind from this passage is a very different kind of a thought. And it's this. Hospitality matters. Well, it seems very trivial, doesn't it, really, compared with all this talk about heaven and earth? But hospitality really does matter, according to this passage. It's given great emphasis in this chapter. The writer goes out, goes out of his way to describe Abraham as a perfect host. Verse 2. When Abraham saw his visitors, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. In verse 4, he says, let a little water be brought, then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. And then in verse 5, let me get you something to eat, so that you may be refreshed, and then go on your way. He is indeed the perfect host to his visitors. And then he and his wife Sarah busy themselves getting a sumptuous meal together, ready for their guests. Roast beef with all the trimmings or something pretty similar. This generous hospitality was, of course, in accordance with the culture of the day. If strangers turned up to your tent, it was the done thing to offer them an uh, um, uh, ample rest and refreshment. But it's not just about the culture of the day. Fast forward 2,000 years to the time of Jesus. And think of the importance of meals and of fellowship around the table for Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels. 
There were breakfasts and dinners and suppers. There were picnics and wedding receptions and parties. For Jesus, the most natural place to meet people and to get to know them and to speak with them about the things of God was around the meal table. What about us today? Is Abraham's hospitality an example for us to follow? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, it is precisely that. That verse says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. A clear echo of that story from Genesis 18. But it is, of course, quite a challenge in our own day, this business of hospitality. Hospitality in our own day is so so very commercialised with our hotels and restaurants and pubs and cafes. And at home, the kitchen and the dining table seem more like pit stops for quickly taking on fuel than places for refreshment and relaxation together. So I honour before God those members of our congregation here who open their homes to newcomers, to students, to single people, to neighbours and so on. And I recognise as offering a truly Christian ministry those who organise refreshments at the close of each service and those who provide meals for various fellowship and the outreach activities of this church. According to the New Testament, hospitality is a hugely important part of Christian ministry. Romans chapter 12 says, Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Peter's first epistle says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. In fact, according to 1 Timothy and uh, Paul's letter to Titus, one of the requirements for leadership in the local church is precisely this, given to hospitality. So then, hospitality matters. Heaven touches earth, and hospitality matters. And now the third thought that I can't get away from, from this passage. It's about hope. Hope often travels a bumpy path. Hope often travels a bumpy path. We learned last week from Genesis 16 that Abraham and Sarah had grown impatient with all this waiting for a son and heir. So they agreed to force the issue by Abraham sleeping with Sarah's maidservant Hagar. And thus was born Ishmael. But this desperate expedient was not in accordance with God's plan. What chapter 18 makes clear is that the promised heir is to be born to Sarah herself. Well, Sarah overhears what the Lord says to Abraham in verse 10. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. But Sarah has been childless all her life, and now she's an old woman. No wonder she chuckles to herself in disbelief. Me? Have a baby son? I should be putting my name down for the old people's home, not for the antenatal class. You cannot be serious. But see how patient the Lord is with Sarah. He doesn't say, 
You laughed at what I just said, and then you lied about it. You're no good to me. No, the Lord simply repeats the promise in verse 14, asking, is anything too hard for the Lord? Friends, this incredulous reaction of Sarah was very human and very understandable. One of the biggest challenges facing the Christian today is to keep on believing the promises of God in the face of doubts, delays, setbacks, disappointments, failures, and yes, indeed, disasters, both natural and man-made. If Abraham and Sarah found their hope travelling a bumpy path, then we are likely to as well. And if Abraham and Sarah needed regular reminders of God's promise, then so do we. And that's why the New Testament is so full of reminders. Reminders are very prominent, for example, in Peter's second epistle. He's warning false teachers who mock the promise of Christ's return. So what does he do? He reminds them. He reminds his readers again and again. I will always, always remind you of these things, he says, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. And then again he says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders. And then he, Peter says again, I want you to recall a ministry of reminding concerning God's promises and his faithfulness to his promises. We need those reminders because hope often travels a bumpy path. Here then are three rather striking things from this morning's episode in the life of Abraham. Heaven touches earth, hospitality matters, hope often travels a bumpy path. It's quite a mixed bag, I realise that. And yet all three seem to shed some light on what we're about to do this morning in our service of Holy Communion. For heaven touches earth when we receive Holy Communion. The Lord's table is a real meeting place between Christ and his people. Our Saviour pledges to meet, us, meet with us there in a special way. Hospitality matters, and so it's no accident that the central focus of the church's worship and fellowship is this simple meal that we call the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion. A meal in which we are all warmly welcomed guests, with Jesus Christ himself as the host who has spared no expense in providing for our needs. Hope often travels a bumpy path. And that's why we need these repeated gatherings, these regular celebrations of Holy Communion. We need them as reminders, apart from anything else. We feed on the body and blood of Jesus Christ by faith with thanksgiving. And that same body and blood will keep us in eternal life. We do this until he comes, until faith is turned to light until the promise first given to Abraham and Sarah and fulfilled in Jesus Christ is finally consummated in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. Thanks be to God.